In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. From the Silly Symphonies and Alice in Wonderland to Hercules and the Princess and the Frog, jazz can be found within a plethora of Disney projects. The history of this style of music follows in many ways the course of Disney's own development, often meeting at peculiar intersections. I am excited to be bringing on author Matthew Hodge, who wrote Cool Cats and a Hot Mouse, A History of Jazz and Disney. It's an expertly written piece of text that uncovers the artists responsible for jazz's emergence and popularity and how this music would ultimately inform a slew of Disney projects. Matt and I talk about the book's development and framing, fun stories found within, lessons learned, and his connection to both music and Disney. So let's head into the wide world of Disney and jazz with this dialogue, shall we? Author Matthew Hodge, an associate professor of theater and musical theater at William Peace University, has translated his adeptness in the world of music and passion for Disney into an award-winning an award-winning book that unveils a new side of Disney tunes. Cool Cats and a Hot Mouse, A History of Jazz and Disney, published from Theme Park Press, catalogs the company's illustrious history as intertwined with jazz's emergence in the United States. Matt provides a foundation for what defines jazz music and its many subgenres, explores the role of race in the musical style's development, and pays tribute to the mouse's many contributions to jazz across film, television, and the parks. Uh, Matt and I have come to know each other very well since I moved to Raleigh recently. He's a significant person in my life, and I'm thrilled to welcome him on to Notably Disney. Glad you're here, Matt. Hi, Brett. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan. I've listened to a lot of it recently. Oh, I'm yes. also I'm also super jealous of the people you get to chat with on here. Well, uh, I would consider 
you in good company with them and them in good company with you. Uh, I know we have a lot to discuss um, as you would probably expect it. And that's what I generally say with all the guests, but it is certainly applicable with you and in chronicling such an interesting dimension of Disney music. But I, I first want uh, you to just give a little bit of a background to who you are and, uh, and some of your proclivities as it pertains to pop culture, music, Disney, and everything in between. Uh, yeah, so I, um, I'm from Kentucky. I was born and raised in Kentucky. My, all of my family and a lot of great friends are still back there. Um, my whole life, I knew I wanted to, to study music and make music a part of my life. And so I went to college and all of my degrees, I got um, three degrees, all varying in, in music and performance and theater and things like that. Um, and then I just always, uh, I love, I love pop culture in terms of how we tell our stories, what stories we tell as people. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to make my career centered on that. So, uh, I teach college and I also am a composer and work in theater and all that fun stuff. But I, I'm always just generally fascinated with how we tell stories, why we tell stories, because whether it's through music or theater or books or uh, movies, anything. I, I just always, I've always found that really fascinating. So even like when I teach my history classes at the, at, um, the university that I teach in, it, uh, I enjoy coming at from the angle of how did we as people tell stories and what is your story compared to this person's story and how does your story compare to this person on the other side of the globe a hundred years ago and why is that important? Because I just think as humans, how we connect to each other is how we express ourselves and the tales we tell, <laughs> both in real life and things we make up as fiction. So I've, I've sort of dedicated my whole life um, to that. And so recently I've gotten uh, into writing a lot. So I've been doing a lot of writing for uh, journals and um, magazines and books and things. And they all they're all sort of different unique branches of the same tree of just looking at something in pop culture, whether it's theater, music, movies, books, video games, whatever it is, and discussing it from different angles that I find really interesting that I think give us insight into who we are as people, consumers, uh, audiences, and what that says about us. I just think that's really fascinating. I, I share your same sentiments and I'm really curious um, because jazz is certainly a distinct and more modern form of music, but perhaps listeners are not acquainted with the origins of jazz and what it represents. Could you maybe share um, a little bit about this musical style and what it represents? Yeah, so when I, uh, when I decided to write the book, because I knew I wanted to write as my first full-length book, something connected to Disney and its approach to music, because I just have always found that really fascinating. Um, and initially, my initial instinct wasn't to just write it all about jazz, but the more research I did and the more I started to look into things, jazz was just really a, a, a through line throughout a lot of things that I found fascinating. And I grew up loving jazz. I played jazz in a lot of jazz bands throughout school. And of course, I teach about jazz music and my music courses. And so it became pretty clear to me um, that, I, that I wanted that to be the focus of the book because Disney was a unique way to approach how do you, how do you look at how jazz came to be. 
Um, and I start the book off with sort of giving, um, giving description examples of just sort of what jazz is and how it, uh, a quick history of how it came to be before we then dive into different examples of it through the quote unquote Disney filter. Um, but jazz is really, really important because, uh, you know, I tell my students, uh, the, speaking of Disney, there was, a, there was a line in one of the Mighty Ducks movies, I think it was the second one, where the teacher is, t is teaching the students and she says, you know, America is a teenager compared to the rest of the world. And that's so true. And so a lot of stuff in our country, it's such a melting pot and it is art forms that we have taken from other people in other places of the world. But jazz is such a thing that is quintessentially American and it started with the people in our country. And so that's why a lot of historians, um, and I mentioned in the book that jazz is often considered the, the first true quintessential American art form. It was homegrown, in this country by the people living in it. Now, in terms of the history and the people of it, it's, it's complicated, it's hard. It deals a lot with race, it deals a lot with um, uh, cultural art forms and music and society of black people versus white people. And so there's a lot of, when you look at the history of jazz, how it came to be, especially as something that America could really put its stamp on as quote unquote American to the rest of the world. It was, it was interesting. It was still taking different ideas of different sort of music things from different parts of the country. And then it was built during this world of a lot of racial, uh, racial divide. Um, and uh, it's really studying the history of jazz music is a way to study a lot of things about America. You get to study how Americans viewed each other, what race relations were like, um, how were black people treated, how were they respected. There's a lot of, of bridges you can see where, you know, jazz music really was built on out of the brains and hearts and fingers of these amazing black artists and before white people joined the movement. And then when white people get involved, then it becomes something different. And there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing successes and breakthroughs with jazz music and a lot of controversies and sad things and oppression with jazz music. And so in terms of a style, it's hard because it's such a big umbrella. That's why in, in the first chapter, I I break down sort of a bunch of different little branches from the tree because to just hear the word, quote unquote, jazz music, that's such a big umbrella. It's like when people use the word classical music that really entails so much stuff. So I kind of go through and I talk about genres that I call jazz adjacent too. So things that here are, here are styles of music that very much are considered, you know, jazz, traditional jazz. And then here are some things that sometimes people don't think about, but I would call it jazz adjacent because it's rooted in fundamentals either from the same notions or the same people or the same kind of movements. Um, and so there's a lot under that umbrella. So, I mean, there's swing and there's blues and we can get into rock and even things like barbershop, which people would typically think, how in the world is that jazz? But when you look at all the different history of the Dixieland and things, uh, there's a lot of connections into them. And so that's why I knew it was important to kind of start off on that footing, which is why the first chapter uh, talks, uh, tries to give a brief history of a lot of those things, all these different branches. How did it come to be? 
where did it come from? Why would we call it jazz? Why would we call it a jazz adjacent thing? Just to get everyone sort of on the same footing before we then look at different Disney examples. Thanks for the context. And I know we're going to explore many of those examples. Uh, I recognize that your book covers 23 chapters, which mm -hmm. I feel is maybe a nod to D23, maybe not. Um, but I, I love the number. Oh my gosh, I never notice that. <laughs> That's well, funny. <laughs> there you go. See, there's symbolism, Matt. Yeah. But, um, each covers a distinct facet or series of projects related to Disney and jazz. Obviously, you're very proficient in, in, in music and your Disney knowledge, but what steps did you take or research did you conduct to determine what Disney's role in jazz has been over the years? Yeah. I, I like the idea of approaching it, you know, once I established in the first chapter, just sort of like a kind of quick uh, history of both Disney and jazz. And I knew once I got into the meat of the book, I wanted each chapter to be solely individualized. So one particular person or one particular famous piece of music or one, uh, um, one particular Disney property, Disney movie or TV show uh, or something that it's connected to. Because um, I thought it would help it be digestible and, and interesting and kind of, you know, you can pick and choose what chapters really fascinate you, even though I try really hard to make them go chronological order. But my big thing writing it was really trying to just source as much as possible everything that I was writing. Every time I put in something in a chapter, I double and triple checked it to see, is this accurate? Is this right? Because I try really hard for it to not just read uh, um, like just a bunch of facts. I try really hard to make the people feel real and the biography of them and, and quotes of what they said or people that actually knew them, what they said, not just what a historian 20 years after that person died said. Something that feels very personable and intimate, which means I really wanted to make sure everything I put in the book was, was true. And sometimes it was tricky. You know, the internet is full of endless information and there are hundreds of books out there um, and sometimes things are subjective and sometimes there's what's true versus what was sort of a, a myth or a legend did they actually really say this or did someone really feel this way so that was tricky I took my time really wanting to make sure everything I wrote in the book was accurate and true and then how I chose the, the specific chapters I just sort of I kind of outlined the whole book and was just looking at what are all the different various ways that people in the jazz world or the Disney empire had jazz. And some of them I already knew. Some of them I didn't really know that much about. Some of them I hadn't heard of at all. Um, and so, and I, and I handpicked the one specifically that I found most interesting. Uh, originally my book was going to have more chapters in it. And then I, it would have even more chapters now because the book I wrote it almost two years ago. And now there's even more things I would, I would have updated it with, uh, which is fascinating to me because that means this Disney jazz relationship is still going on, right? Um, Soul, the movie Soul was not out when I wrote this book. And so I could have had a whole chapter about Soul. And uh, I tried really hard to just condense it to 23 specific stories, chapters that I found interesting. It doesn't mean it covers every single thing that Disney and jazz uh, have ever done together, but just moments throughout it. And I'd like doing them chronologically and I encourage readers to read it chronologically because when you do that, again, you sort of see the bigger picture of how is America evolving? 
how are race relations evolving? How are people uh, viewing gender evolving? How is people's musical taste evolving? How does how is war affecting these things? Um, I like looking at things chronologically because to me that's just as important. You know why why is jazz music so big in the '30s, the '40s, and why is it not that big in the '50s? Um, and same thing like you know why is Disney you know, uh, huge in the 90s, but why is it not that huge in the 70s? You know, chronological, I think, makes a, a big difference in how we, how we tell stories and how we understand how things evolved. Because jazz and Disney really came up at the exact same time. And they kept, that's why they kept uh, clashing <laughs> in good ways and bad ways. Because there was literally two huge empires of American entertainment coming up together and getting popular in mainstream culture at the same time. And so that's why I found them both fascinating to discuss. And that's why I was shocked that um, when I talked to the publisher about it, they were excited about the book because there really hadn't been an entire book dedicated just to Disney and jazz. There's a, a ton of amazing books about jazz and about Disney and Disney music where jazz is mentioned, but there had never been a whole book just solely focused to chronologically looking at jazz and Disney, which is why I got really excited about the project. Well, you, you may, you've made a reference now a few times, Matt, regarding jazz's emergence coinciding with Disney as a brand, as a company's emergence as well. And one thing that strikes me about that is something that um, when, when I had Joseph Trapanese, the composer behind the 2019 Lady and the Tramp, um, was talking about how that film, which draws heavily from New Orleans-based um, jazz and the film is set um, in the South as well, really honors that rich, distinctly American legacy um, and style. And, and as you made reference earlier, that jazz's origins um, started from, from Black performers, and your book is really explicit in interrogating how jazz um, has often been exploited um, and used quite heavily by white performers and, and even recognize um, Disney's faults or, or shortcomings at times in, in terms of jazz's manipulation um, by, by white performers. I'm, I'm wondering, I, I guess this is the academic in me and, and knowing that you're a fellow academic, but I think listeners will appreciate this too, in terms of how you as an author make deliberate choices in terms of how and when to pick things apart, because we're talking about things that are much broader than just the notion of enjoying the fine art of music, but rather how it's used and interpreted by folks with different uh, privileges. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was, it was really, really important to me. Um, I knew I could not write a book about jazz and Disney and not have race be a part of it. Um, that would be ridiculous. No, I, I should not write the book if I'm not willing to address those things because the history of jazz is the history of race in a lot of ways in America um, and how white audiences and black audiences viewed each other. And you know, the, as jazz rose, there were plenty of examples where once white people start to join the movement, well, all of a sudden white people get more fame, white people get credited. A lot of the nicknames early on of who's the king of jazz, who's the the this and this and this and the, all the different famous labels, it would be go to a white person um, because it made you know audiences more comfortable. 
And so I knew if I was going to write a book about jazz and Disney, even though I wanted it to be focused on the music and celebrating the relationship, it, it, there also had to, had to be frank discussions about race. But, I, but it was also a tricky line because Disney has a lot of, you know, everyone knows Disney has a lengthy history and there's a, a big part of the history that they don't handle race very well. I mean, Disney Plus has now had to put a lot of commentary, you know, and sort of warnings on films that are older. You know, the, the way race was depicted in animation and in movies was often, you know, really offensive and insensitive and uh, racist. And so I knew I wasn't writing a book about racism and the history of race in America. I was writing a book about musical movements and how it connected to these two worlds. But I knew race is going to be a part of it. And that's another reason why <laughs> I keep bringing up like chapter one, chapter one. But I really wanted to make sure chapter one kind of covered all my bases to set up what the rest of the book is. And so there's also a section of chapter one where I, I uh, address it head on. And I say, okay, this book is going to talk about race at certain times. And then I talk about it. Here's the terminology I'm going to use based on the research that I'm citing or quoting. Here's, here are times when I will talk about race and here are times when I won't. And it depends on the chapter and the story that is between the individual artist or musician or whoever I'm focusing on and the Disney project or that they're working on. And so sometimes race is very much a part of that narrative and sometimes race isn't. And so I give examples in the book of how you know, if, if I'm talking about an artist and a big part of their life story is about their racial uh, oppression or racism they experience, I absolutely have to talk about that, especially if it's in line with their journey as a musician. But there's some chapters where I will talk about a Disney project or property. And within that property, there are definitely some things in there that are not uh, that are not acceptable by modern audiences of how race is viewed. But if it's not directly correlating with the music thing I'm talking about, then I, I don't really address it that much because it was hard to walk a line of, I don't want it to turn into a book about the history of race and racism, but I also have to be uh, very honest about it when that's going to then when that's going to be at the center of the conversation and me as a, uh, I'm a, a white male, me as writing it as a white male, I was very sensitive to that and, and was very, uh, very obvious that I'm a white person writing a lot of chapters about race relations and about these black musicians and artists and what they were going through and how were they, how they were treated. Um, and so I, I had people read it. I had people that I really respected that were different, uh, that were all different diversities of thought and ethnicity and nationality and race and different things and gender, because I wanted to get different perspectives of, do you think this, uh, how I'm approaching this is working? Because I didn't want to go in with any kind of thoughts that I, as a white person, am, am going to know exactly how to write about this. So it was tricky. The book talks about some serious stuff, but also in a way that fits the tone, because the publisher was very clear on, you know, this isn't meant to be a, a thick textbook. It's not meant to be super scholarly. 
even though it's about important facts, it's meant to be, you know, we call a, a beach read, something fun that's not super hard to get through and super thick and you can pick it up for fun. It's entertaining, educational. So how do you balance that and still talk about some of the serious things, especially when it deals with race? Um, so it was, it was tricky. It's one of the things that I knew was most important about the book, but also what I was most careful about, because that's hard to, to balance that tone of, you know, light, fun beach read. But also we're talking about, you know, some, some serious stuff, because Disney isn't just all fun. And the history of jazz is a history of a lot of serious things. When you look at the history of jazz, you see war and you see loss and you see religion and you see racism. You see all these different things that people take very seriously. So how do you do that? And yet the book isn't about that, but you have to be honest about it when you need to, but also in a way that's for general audiences as well. It was a little bit of a tightrope to walk and hopefully I did okay with it. <laughs> yeah, that's a challenge I think for any writer when you're accounting for all these different considerations. And one of the I guess, facets that I appreciated, well, I mean, there were many, I think you're right, it is, it is a very straightforward uh, piece of text. The, the chapters are in like bite-sized chunks, so they're very easily digestible. And really what's what I found quite interesting as someone who is perhaps a consumer of jazz um, and, and, and it's many um, offshoots, I should say, but, but I didn't know as much about the particular performers, these, these folks who are, are legends in, in that world, folks like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Ella James, so, so many folks. And I'm wondering what challenges did you face in condensing these stories of famous jazz performers, many of whom have been chronicled at length in other texts. And your task is to do that in a matter of a few pages and, and discuss those Disney connections. Yeah, it was, it was tricky, but it was fun. So, you know, the book talks about uh, both in this, in the side of jazz and Disney things that are super famous. So very famous Disney movies that everyone has seen and or heard about and really famous jazz singers and musicians that, you know, people know and people and Disney properties that maybe you don't know as much about. And it was really important to me to, to fit, to fit the tone of the book, right? Where we just talked about how it's not meant to be like an encyclopedia or a textbook or a very scholarly highbrow thing. It's just, you pick it up and you read it and you learn and hopefully most of all get entertained by it. But the notion of in order to do that, it, it's not just about writing about someone's resume, but about who they were as a person, which is why I tried really hard to have quotes and things and testimonies from them themselves or people who knew them. So I watched a lot of interviews, I read a lot of things um, and I wanted to make sure that a lot of the interviews, if it wasn't the particular musician or artist, it was someone that knew them really well. It was a family member, it was a friend, it was letters they had written, things like that where it wasn't just kind of a bird's eye view, a third person, you know, six degrees away from them, some random historian talking about it, talking about that person. Um, that was important to me, especially if I only have a few chapters because the publisher, you know, made it very clear what tone they wanted, which also indicates kind of, you know, shorter chapters, very digestible chapters. 
So I knew I only had a few pages to really dive into what's the point of telling this story. And probably the point is I think this person or this project or this thing that came out of it, connecting jazz and Disney is interesting in some way. And why do I think that's interesting and to get to it. And as a, and as a person, I really want people to, to get to know who they were beyond just the music, right? Um, and especially when it came to them in Disney, a lot of these famous artists that I talk about in the book, oftentimes the, the Disney thing they worked on isn't the thing they're most famous for. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. But I was, uh, it was really heartwarming to hear that even though there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of race relational things and, and things that happened on the, on the outside and perimeter of, of both of these industries coming up at the same time, there was a lot of example of l- love between Disney and these artists. A lot of the musicians even uh, t- talked about how the Disney project they worked on in some capacity was one of their most favorite things they had done in their career, even though it may not be the famous thing that they're written about in you know, the history of music textbooks. But just as a person, they loved it, you know? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I mean, Louis Armstrong is a prime example of it where he really, uh, he loved working with, um, with Disney and he really wanted to be able to, to do something with Disney and Disney really wanted to be able to do something with Louis Armstrong. It was one of the things he, that Walt Disney requested before he passed away to for Louis Armstrong to record Disney album and Louis Armstrong finally got to do it but Walt didn't get to live to hear it but Louis Armstrong uh, recorded this Disney album and it's not at all the most famous Louis Armstrong I mean it's not like when you google Louis Armstrong the first thing that comes up is this Disney CD he recorded but he personally said that it was one of the the one of his most favorite things he had ever done in his life and uh, as a musician, um, and there's some really beautiful things. There's a moment in, um, in When You Wish Upon a Star where he's singing and he throws in the word mama and it's so like heartfelt. And he would say, I, w- I, listened, I would listen to that song three to four times a night and I loved it. And those little kind of stories where at the heart, the, the industry of jazz and the industry of Disney could clash at times and and have controversy surrounding it a lot of the examples within the chapter most of the stories are are about it was a it was a loving relationship collaboration between the the person not every chapter there were there's a few where there was some love lost but a lot of them are uh, it was a positive relationship between the individual and the thing they did with disney and how just as a musician it actually fulfilled them a lot uh, which I really enjoyed. And those were the kind of things I wanted to to get to the heart of the story. You know, so with Louis Armstrong, you know, Louis Armstrong is one of the most famous people in the history of, of the world. He He helped build jazz to what it is today. And the fact that out of all of the amazing accomplishments that he did in his career, the thing that he listened to over and over in his own home and the thing that he said was one of the best things he ever did in his career was a Disney album that a lot of people haven't even really heard about, or it's not really his most famous thing he did. 
So those are just like one examples of that's what I really wanted to focus on. Tell those kind of stories that bridge the, these two worlds and show that there was a lot of positive relationships between the two worlds. Yeah, that comes across really clearly. I also want to correct myself based on something I said earlier. I, I meant to refer to Ella Fitzgerald. That's who I who I had in mind oh, uh, okay. when I was talking about um, different examples of artists that you cover. Um, you, you speak about just now in terms of Louis Armstrong's uh, connection to Disney and, and the, just the, the poignance of one of his last recordings playing the trumpet being uh, within his Disney album, um, as you mentioned. That, that was just a, a striking fun fact that just comes across as, as very sweet. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the Louis Armstrong chapter is a really, really, um, like if people read one chapter, I think that's actually a really solid chapter to read because Louis Armstrong is, depending on which historian you talk to, is one of the most famous, if not the most famous person. Um, in jazz and his life is super fascinating and all the things he did and the Disney album he had such affection for um, and he loved it yeah and then it's uh, not you know with Louis Armstrong not only is he singing but he also plays the trumpet um, and all those things that you really feel emotional from him and as I said he um, he improvised a lot and he would do things to it to really infuse his own style. It, it wasn't, it wasn't Louis just doing covers of Disney for Disney. It was him really make turning Disney into him, which is why the album Disney, the Satchmo way, Satchmo way is, uh, is aptly titled because he turns it into his things and his love of voice and instrument. Um, it, it's a really great story of just a great example of how Disney and not just the corporation, but Walt himself, Walt really loved jazz and not just jazz music, but he, there's a lot of evidence to show he really loved jazz musicians. He wanted to work with artists and jazz musicians and not just the white jazz musicians that were popular with mainstream audiences he wanted to work with pioneers and artists that he found to be incredible whether they were white or black and so louis armstrong was a prime example of that and so you know louis armstrong's album is because walt loved him so much and, and asked him to do an album and unfortunately walt didn't get to live to see it necessarily uh but it's you know, again, those sort of stories are, are nice to focus on. Yeah. And then, like you said, the album, it's also not just Louis saying it was one of his favorite experiences, but it is also the last time we get to hear him um, play trumpet on a newly, um, on a new uh, recording. He sang on a few more recordings after the album, but it was the last time we get to hear his trumpet playing which is one of the things that he became most famous for. So the final recordings he did on his trumpet were Disney tunes and his favorite Disney tunes. Right. Well, and you know, you're talking about Walt's uh, appreciation for jazz music. And I think 
Well, you know, a prime example of where this materializes in a physical format is New Orleans Square um, at Disneyland. Uh, a lot happening in the mid-1960s there. It was a very prolific um, period for the company. And one of the most salient uh, products from Disney in the mid-60s, or any decade for that matter, is Mary Poppins. And one of your chapters actually centered on Duke Ellington and how he entered the Disney universe through interpreting songs for Mar from Mary Poppins um, with, without having seen the film for an album that debuted around the time's release. And this, I kind of see a parallel here in terms of just the notion of, well, jazz as an art form, it relies a lot on improvisation and being very flexible and adding a lot of flavor and taste. Well, there's, there's an, a, a prime example of not being familiar with the tone of, of the film, but still putting your own touch on it. And it being a very popular and, and critically acclaimed uh, piece, no less. Yeah, and I love, you know, with that story that a lot of people don't know that Duke Ellington, when he was approached, it was, uh, it, it was he was approached by the, by the Disney company to think that, okay, if we, can, if we can get you to record an album, because we love you, that it'll help market Mary Poppins, like it'll come out around the same time, help promote it. And so he agreed to do it. He was, uh, Duke Ellington was happy that he got um, asked to do it, but he purposely made the choice. He didn't want to see the movie. And so it's another prime example of how, you know, the people that helped build jazz into what it was and what it became popular for were true artists. They, they weren't just musicians. They were musical artists. They, were, they lived a soul of jazz. And so that's a great example of imagine, you know, you're hired to, your job is to record music the whole point of the songs are they're from this movie and the whole point is to promote this movie and he is going to record an entire album of it and not see the movie and he purposely chose to do that because he knew that he could he wanted to just have an instinctual intimate relationship with him and the songs and not have any influence from the movie which i think was a really bold decision but also a brilliant decision and another uh, another example of uh, people really acting as artists, you know, what became abundantly clear when you read the history of jazz and you hear these famous pioneers and, and famous people that helped build jazz into it of why they love jazz, what it means to them. It is not just music. It's not just notes. It is a way of life. It is a way of being. It, it comes out of their soul, out of their heart in a way that, uh, not that all musicians don't feel that to a certain extent, but it really seems very evident in jazz because jazz was built as an extension of view and, and emotions and improv and not just being glued to ink on a page. It, we're, gonna, we're gonna elevate it to an experience. And so Duke Ellington is just one example of, of that because he knew in order to have an intimate relationship and all of his being of recording these songs uh, as a relationship with the music to make it as innocent and pure as possible he had to not see the movie which i feel like most 90 other 90 percent of other people would have said sure let me see the movie and i'll i'll see how i like the songs he made a whole album for mary poppins to promote mary poppins 
and never saw Mary Poppins before he recorded it, which, you know, is genius. And then sadly, not sadly, I mean, it, it was critically acclaimed, but it, but the movie became so such a, a success that it kind of overshadowed the album. So the album isn't nearly as famous as the movie itself is. Yeah, such such comes with being in the shadow of of the most probably the most beloved Disney live action film ever made. So, but hey, yeah. at least there's the association, even if it's yeah, a bit more yeah. tangential. Yeah, but you know, now you can go and listen to that album, and as you're listening to it, keep in mind that he recorded those songs not seeing the movie, which I right. think is a really fascinating way to listen to the album. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I'm curious, and we've kind of alluded to this in a sense already through, um, well, in a sense through Duke Ellington's work for Mary Poppins and Ultimate, and later on, uh, Louis Armstrong providing covers, cover versions in a sense, if you want to call it that, of mm-hmm. famous Disney tunes. What are your thoughts of these cover albums and particular performers translating Disney standards that may not necessarily have a jazz or jazz origins or jazz roots into a style that is somehow connected to jazz. How do you interpret that? I think the idea of it's really popular in culture nowadays to do covers, right? Uh, Half of YouTube videos are someone doing a cover of another song. And I always think that's really fascinating. Um, I, I'm a big fan of constantly reintroducing each new generation to something older. Um, that was my window into things that I necessarily didn't know about until I heard a cover of something and it made me go, oh, I don't know that song. Or, you know, that's a cool way to hear something. And so I'm a fan of anything that, that lets music live on and get reintroduced. Um, so, you know, there is, a, there is a lot of stuff with, Disney and people doing jazz versions of things. There's, there's quite a bit of jazz, um, jazz Disney, right? If you go to Spotify and you do just do a, a search for Disney jazz, tons of stuff is going to come up. And a lot of those are covers of things. Um, I, in general, am a fan of it. I know in, to, in today's world, there are interesting conversations um, to be had. And we have them in my college class of, you know, at what point, do people think it crosses the line into music appropriation or things like that? When you start to cover or you're, you're using one music style to cover another music style and depending on how you do it, was that a good way to do it or an offensive way to do it or a music appropriation way to do it? And those are interesting conversations to have that should be had. But in general, just the idea of doing a cover and especially specifically Disney jazz, um, I, I think it's great because in the sense it, reintrodu- it allows audiences to get reintroduced with something. So if it's a way to introduce kids to what quote unquote jazz is and what it could sound like, great. If it introduces you to a style that you didn't really know you loved, great. If it takes doing popular famous music and Disney songs are very, very famous and popular. Um, If it takes doing them in jazzy ways to get people to notice jazz more, then great, you know, then use that as 
inspiration to then go out and seek more jazz stuff. You know, uh, anything to, to reintroduce and educate people is fantastic. Because again, a lot of my window into musical artists or styles of music was because of a, of a cover or another version of it that then made me recognize it a certain way and then go, oh, I want to look more into that. That's cool. That sounds cool. Why do I like that? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I appreciate cover albums too. I think it depends on the situation and, and the talents of the artist. And, and I love how YouTube serves, as you mentioned earlier, just a kind of a breeding ground for folks to, um, to experiment and yeah. to um, reinterpret. It's, it's a beautiful thing that we have that as a, as a platform and ultimately a humongous library of Disney songs that may not have been uh, framed in that format originally uh, in that genre, but there's that opportunity to evolve. Yeah, and that exists even more than I knew it did when I started writing the book. Even I didn't realize how much there was in terms of, literally if you just Google on YouTube and Spotify and Pandora and, and sheet music and music for school jazz bands and things, how much Disney has been uh, not translated, but converted into jazz style, no matter if it was originally written as a jazz song or not. It seems to be a really popular, one of the go-to ways to do a cover of a Disney song. And again, uh, great. If that, if that makes people love jazz more, then I'm all for it. Right. Well, and you, you also mentioned earlier the notion of younger generations being exposed to older songs through, through YouTube and other mechanisms, but you also have a whole chapter on what do you frame as recycled tunes, which are basically yeah. <laughs> standards. Um, see what I did there in terms of segues? Um, you're, you're, you are great at this. You're a pro. I, I expect you to say that. No, I'm just kidding. No, in terms of these recycled tunes that were popular many decades earlier than when they appeared in a Disney film. So a prime example of that, I feel like I keep saying prime examples, but a fantastic example of that is a Halloween standard, Hocus Pocus, and I put a spell on you. And so yeah. many folks just associate it singularly with that moment with Bette Midler taking the stage and literally casting a spell on all of those patrons, but it, it did not start there. It actually came from uh, many decades earlier. And you also mentioned Why Don't You Do Right from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Rabbit the songs uh, in the closing credits of Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what, in what ways do you feel that they're, uh, that Disney has kind of brought new life to some of these songs that may not have been forgotten, but perhaps not fresh in people's minds. Yeah. Well, again, it's sort of what I said about, um, I'm, uh, I'm all for anything that constantly reintroduces things back into public audiences. Um, because again, I remember growing up a, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my examples of learning to love a certain band or a certain song from you know generations before was because of how I saw it as an audience member. Um, I mean, just a few examples. Like I remember, obviously, I had heard about the Beatles, but as a teenager, I fell in love with the Beatles because I watched the movie Across the Universe, and that made me rush 
to go, I gotta listen, I gotta listen to all these Beatles songs now. Right. Um, I remember, uh, <laughs> this is going to date me, but I remember watching, um, <laughs> Dawson's Creek on, in high school. And there's an episode where they, there's a, a cover of the song Daydream Believer by the monkeys. And I'd never heard that song before. And the episode came on and I, and I was thinking, what is this song? I love this song. And then of course I go find it and find out, oh, that wasn't a song written for Dawson's Creek. <laughs> that was a song, a famous song from a famous band generations ago. But I didn't know that. Um, you know, of course, uh, how many people associate I Put a Spell on You with Hocus Pocus? Um, you know, Shrek, how many people know the song I'm a Believer because of Shrek? So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, if that being a window into learning about something, great. And Disney does have quite a bit of that. And not just with jazz, um, but they do have multiple examples of doing, doing it with jazz, which is why I have a whole chapter on it, because I wanted to show how this is another way jazz lives through Disney um, by it uh, resurrecting songs for new generations. And sometimes it's covers, sometimes it's you know the real version, um, but a way to, to get people to introduce, because then hopefully the goal is you go, oh, I love that song. And then you start to, to do some research and go, oh, that's a new interesting bit of history, right? I, I loved as a kid the song I put a spell on you. You didn't want to like be on stage with Bette Midler and Kathy and Jimmy singing that song. But then once you do your research, you go, oh, that song wasn't written for Bette Midler for Hocus Pocus. It has a whole life of its own and a whole history. Um, you know, just like it took across the universe to make me want to go listen to every Beatles song ever recorded because my mind was just blown with how much I loved the songs. So I, I am all for doing covers and for doing what I call the recycle tunes where it just, uh, it reintroduces new generations. It introduces kids to songs and, and musicians that they should know. It reminds adults of songs that you may have forgotten about or musicians you may have forgotten about because that's how the world keeps spinning and that's how we keep educating ourselves and not letting music die or get forgotten. Yeah, no, I, pre I like how you shared those examples. It makes me think back to even my own experiences uh, as someone uh, just wanting to be exposed to different forms of music, but it coming across in unexpected ways. So. Uh, one TV show that un was under the Disney mold uh, was a short-lived series on ABC called Eli Stone and focused on this, yeah. this guy who had these um, really cool visions. He was a lawyer. And um, anyways, there would be song and dance and song sequences. And, um, and George Michael's music was prominently featured on, on the show and, and he actually appeared on it. And that what for me was a vehicle to get to explore his music. Um, so kind of like what you mentioned with Dawson's, Dawson's Creek. Um, <laughs> mind you, my reference yeah. is a decade later, but we, um, <laughs> Thank nonetheless. You. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. You're yeah, welcome. Actually, fun fact too, because I, I teach musical theater as well. Dawson's Creek, actually I said high school, but Dawson's Creek was really these particular examples. I was in middle school, like eighth grade at the time. But I remember Dawson's Creek was also the first time I heard a Les Mis song. Katie Holmes sang On My Own in one of the, like the, the first years she gets up and does a talent show and she sings On My Own. And I love that song. 
And then as I got older, I realized, oh, that's from a Broadway musical called Les Mis that wasn't written for Katie Holmes to sing on Dawson's Creek. (laughs) But great. If I learned as a young person about a Broadway musical called Les Mis because I saw Katie Holmes sing it on a teen soap opera show, great. You know, as long as it got me to Les Mis, right? As long as what it, as long as these fun ways that we in, that we input music and we recycle them and we do interesting things in them, as long as it leads to a path of oh, go learn more about that music that you really liked. And I'm always doing that. I'm still discovering things. I'll hear a song in a movie or a TV show and I love it. And it makes me want to go Google it because I want to be smart about it and go, was that, is that a new song? Was that song for that movie? Has this song been around 20 years and I've never, and I just am dumb and don't know that. (laughs) And I enjoy researching it. Yeah. That's something, yeah, that I think we share in common, appreciating different forms of art as a mechanism toward that further discovery. And uh, you know, one of the chapters that opens your book, uh, one of the earlier chapters, I should say, is on the silly symphonies. And mm. it would be almost remiss to not cover those shorts because <laughs> not only did they debut during the heyday of jazz, but several of them really saliently infused them into um, the shorts, um, both or you know, orally, but also visually, um, you mentioned the, the short all about the musical instruments. And I, I remember that. And I think actually it might be available for free on uh, YouTube uh, via one of Disney's channels, YouTube mm-hmm. channels. But I think that's just a fascinating, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but in terms of a fascinating demonstration of, of all of these different channels of artistry combining in the time period in which it was so prominent yeah yeah the silly symphonies are it's a really interesting conversation because it's a it's a conversation that kind of exemplifies the um the good and the bad the angel and the devil on disney's shoulder in a sense so a lot of people you know when you think about disney animation we always go to the movies we don't necessarily think about silly symphonies but silly symphonies are in some ways the backbone of what all of those things were built on silly symphonies gave disney and his company a, a decade of uh, perfecting how to do animation how to combine it with music how to tell a story through animation um a, a ton of uh, walt's academy awards started with the silly symphonies i mean it was just a decade long of dominating awards and uh, animation with these things and each one had a different theme and silly symphonies were often not that uh, not that um what's the word they didn't lean so much into dialogue. It was very much, we're going we're going to tell the story visually, which means the music is the main character. It's not just background. The music is what's driving the story because there's not tons of dialogue. And so because, like you said, it came during a time in America where jazz was exploding, well, then obviously jazz is going to seep into silly symphonies, especially because Disney really liked jazz. And so there are multiple times where jazz injects itself into the silly symphonies and so the the chapter you're talking about dives into that and then some of them you know through today's modern audience is some of them are more successful than others because it's also during the 30s where you know if you're if you're going to talk about jazz music well that also means you're you're going to probably talk about black people 
well, how did we talk about and depict Black people in the 30s? Not well. So even within the world of silly symphonies and then the filtering it through the ones that talk about jazz, some are, are still successful, like the Musicland Silly Symphony is a really, really uh, great one because that one is good because it, it focuses on, it tells a story between, you know, basically uh, jazz music and classical music badly, you know, you know who's better. And they, they, they do it by making the instruments come to life and tell a story. But that one is successful because what it's focusing on is jazz as a musical movement and culture. And that Silly Symphony really gives a lot of intelligent uh, commentary of what was happening in the time of this musical movement of jazz as a popular mainstream uh, form of entertainment. But then we have something like Mother Goose Goes to Hollywood, which not as successful, <laughs> um, even though it, it celebrates certain jazz people, jazz in that one is focused on through characters of, uh, characters of, of um, famous jazz artists and uh, black ones. And of course, how black people were depicted in the thirties and especially during animation, it's not necessarily flattering. It's done as, a, as an offensive caricature and it's deemed as racist and pretty insensitive. So it's, it's tricky. Silly Symphonies is a really interesting conversation. And in some of my classes, when we talk about the history of film and music and things like that, uh, we look at Silly Symphonies because it's a decade of, of a foundation that builds what Disney eventually becomes that it's going to get famous for, right? Once Snow White hits at the end of the 30s and then Pandora's box is open and now we're going to build an empire on these impressive full-length animated films. Well, uh, the whole foundation that was built on, Snow White wouldn't have existed if we hadn't had these Silly Symphonies. And a lot of the techniques that they learned that animators learned how to do for the the first slew of animated uh, feature films like Snow White and Dumbo and Fantasia and Pinocchio through the late 30s and 40s they learned those techniques by working on the silly symphonies and the silly symphonies music is what drove it so it's a really interesting thing to watch and to watch it through our modern eyes most of them you can find on youtube like a bootleg version and, you know, there are multiple ones that deal with jazz. And I think I discussed three in the, in the chapter. Um, I discussed Woodland Cafe and Mother Goose Goes to Hollywood and Musicland. But in my opinion, they're all three different levels of success. Like, is it successful, especially through our modern eyes? Um, and they represent sort of the good and the bad, the successes we got with how we tell music as a story, how jazz music can be part of a narrative and telling story, but also it establishes some things that are not gonna be good that Disney's gonna have to apologize for later and fix. Um, so it's an interesting conversation. The Silly Symphonies really are sort of the angel and the devil <laughs> a little bit on Disney's shoulders, but whatever, it is good or bad. It was the foundation that built what Snow White was then able to, to bear fruit of and then build this huge Pandora's box of empire that Disney got to build. But most people, when they think of Disney starting, they think of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But Silly Symphonies is really where it started. There would be no Snow White without the Silly Symphonies. There you go. Well, and your book covers 
really the entire history of Disney and jazz, maybe save for the the, the most recent uh, film, as you mentioned with Soul. But what I want to really illustrate to, to readers is that you have a nice chapter on the princess and the frog, which mm -hmm. is one of the more apparent instances <laughs> of, of jazz, very saliently. You have a chapter on uh, Disney parks and resorts, which seems fitting because of course you hear jazz music being piped in um, through all the speakers. You have live performers um, like the like the pianist at uh, Casey's Corner. Um, you also illustrate a paragraph of on a kind of an unexpected aspect of Disney jazz coming about, but very saliently in a sense, there's a whole section of Disney's all-star music resort focused <laughs> on jazz. It's called the yeah. Jazz Inn. And I remember uh, staying at, at that resort and, and passing those buildings in my, in my childhood and thinking, wow, this is so cool. What are these instruments? I'm not familiar. So yeah. I, I think that it's uh, appreciated that you, you kind of uh, recognize that that jazz materializes in a physical format as well in the Disney sphere. Yeah, no, it does. And, and I knew early on, I wanted to have a chapter that was dedicated to the parks and not just the parks, but just sort of the whole immersive experience of you're going to go visit Disney and live Disney for a day or a week. Uh, and because it was very clear, you know, when you, when you read and watch all the interviews with Walt Disney and why he built Disneyland and, and then how that led to Disney World, you know, just the notion of how important it was for the immersiveness of it and what it meant to, to, uh, for people to feel immersed into stories and these worlds that Disney was creating. And so uh, sound and smell and sight, all the senses come together in those parks in a very purposeful way. So because Disney himself loved jazz and because by that point, jazz had a strong history of being uh, very prominent in Disney. It was, uh, it was one of the foundations of Disney music in a sense. Um, it, it wasn't shocking to see that as we build these immersive worlds for audiences to go visit and sleep in and walk around and ride in and eat in, that jazz is going to be uh, a lot of places, not everywhere, but a substantial amount of places, whether it's on the ride or it's in the restaurant or it's in the hotel you stay at. And so I knew I wanted to have a chapter and I focus on that. And what's interesting too, is that because jazz is seen around the world as very American, it's a very quintessential American art form that then got it uh, adopted into other international forms. Then I also talk about the parks that aren't in America, the international Disney parks, because jazz is also evident in those areas as well. Um, yeah, and then the all, the, the, the all-star music was just fun because they have a whole section dedicated to jazz, which is great. I mean, it's very over the top and colorful and very eye-popping. It's great for selfies because there's huge drum sets and huge uh, saxophones and trumpets and trombones, and which I really appreciate um, because it's highlighting the instruments, the horns and the drums and saxophones that really helped uh, build jazz. And I love that there's a couple of huge silhouettes of horn players, which I really, really like. So it, 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 you can tell that Disney uh, has an appreciation for jazz and wants jazz to be one of the many cornerstones of its music. And so that's why I wanted to do a whole chapter of 
when you experience Disney around the world and all their different theme parks and hotels, what are all the various ways you get jazz? Or even when you don't even realize it, when you don't even realize it's playing in the background, it's just subconscious in you. Um, you know, some of the spots around the parks is pretty obvious where there would be jazz and then some it's not. So I always found that fascinating. So that was a really fun chapter to write. Now that chapter may be out of date in a few years because things are always changing and Disney parks are always getting new construction and new rides are getting changed left and right. So I remember that was one of the chapters I had to start it with the sentence of, at the time I'm writing this, <laughs> this is where you will probably hear or experience jazz if you visit one of these parks or stay at one of these, one of these places. Who knows if that'll be like that 10 years from now, but it's right. fun. Well, and, you know, certainly the makeover to Splash Mountain to Princess yeah. and the Frog will be a, a very apparent um, presentation of jazz. Uh, and, and I understand perhaps some uh, original material um, as well. So that would be very cool. Yes. So Matt, thinking back to this whole journey of, of what, you've, what you've created here uh, with this, this title and a lot of reflections. Um, what, what new understandings of jazz did you glean from writing this book? Um, a few things. It really, what I enjoyed most were the stories of the musicians and singers and, and trying to get to know them beyond, oh, that famous song that I know them from, or, oh yeah, yeah, I know their name, but do I know them past, you know, that one album I heard, or, oh yeah, I played that song in jazz band or whatnot, getting to the heart of who the people were and what they said and what they felt. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. You know, a lot of these names I heard, but I didn't know all of their, their stories who, you know, how they grew up, what made them as people, what hardships did they overcome? Uh, what successes did they have that I didn't know about? Um, and how did, did Disney play a factor in that, uh, in some of those pieces of their story? I just found that really, uh, really fascinating. Um, and then, uh, like I said earlier, I also really enjoyed, even though I knew writing it, there would be you know, controversies to write about and things that weren't pleasant to write about and racism examples and mistreatment and all these different things that are going to be circling around some of these conversations because it, it has to if you talk about the history of anything in this country um, in the last 150 years those conversations are going to come up but at the heart of most of the chapters like i said not all of them but most of them there is at the heart of it a, a corporation disney and if, when Walt was alive, uh, a man, Walt, and a person, a musician, an artist, uh, and how they had a relationship. And most of the examples that I found, it was, like I said earlier, it was heartwarming to hear that they, they enjoyed it. Um, you know, a lot of the people I talk about in the book, they, they loved it. They loved doing the Disney, um, their their Disney property that they did. They found it really fulfilling. Again, it might not have been, you know, the most critically acclaimed thing they ever did or what they won their awards for, but just as a person, they loved it. Um, you know, like I said, Louis Armstrong uh, loved his Disney album that he created so much. Uh, Eartha Kid, I have a whole chapter about her. She loved getting to do her voice work 
Um, it basically allowed her a whole extra chapter of her career before she died. She won multiple Emmy awards right before she died because of Disney. Right, the Emperor's um, New School. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Louis, uh, Louis Prima loved working with Disney. In fact, he, I talked about in his chapter, he, after he did um, stuff with Disney, he, he fought to do more. Like he was insulted. Why aren't you having me do more with you? <laughs> you know, he loved it. Uh, Duke Ellington and Disney were thrilled to get to work together. Um, Count Basie got to work with Disney after he became the first black man to win a Grammy award. And Disney was a, one of the big things he did after that. And it, it just, uh, it was heartwarming to uh, knowing that I was going in to write a book about Disney and jazz. And I knew there was a good chance I was going to find a lot of bad stories of, oh, this fighting and, oh, this horrible instance of racism and, oh, these controversies. And, and those things exist because it's, it just, it has to. How does it not in that history? But at the heart of it, especially the, once you get through those weeds and you get to the story, the individuals in the story oftentimes really enjoyed it. And that's what was nice. So by the, I didn't know all the stories I was going to find when I started researching. So I didn't really know exactly by the end of the book, it, was the book going to be very critical? Was the book going to be a downer? <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I found by the end of it that the book was really inspiring because these people were inspiring. Disney is inspiring for the vision he created. All of these individual people's stories of their lives and how they formed their identity and, and career as jazz industry pioneers and what they overcame as people, uh, uh, either with their gender or their race, um, was inspiring. And then to, to read how they enjoyed working together and how those partnerships came about was really inspiring. Because like I said, most of the chapters, like 80% of the chapters, it ends um, well in a sense of here's something, even if the chapter talks about something hard or uncomfortable or not good, that by the end of it, this relationship that these people in that chapter created was something that they both seemed to look back on with fond memories and enjoy. So there was a lot of love there. And so that's what I was excited most about after I finished the book, when I got to see it all put together and, and see that overall, even though I talk about things that aren't always comfortable or positive to talk about, overall, by the end of it, I hope that audiences can feel how inspiring these people were and how the um their work with disney was just a facet of their personality and how they enjoyed it because then it lets you listen to it even more with a great appreciation it lets me listen to eartha kid's voice acting and know how much she was loving that and to let me listen to uh louis prima's work on jungle book and to know that he was just having the time of his life and listen to Louis Armstrong's Disney CD and know, listen to When You Wish Upon a Star and when he says mama. And like, that's what he listened to before he went to bed at night. Like that really humanizes it and brings it to a deeper level, a deeper level than what I even knew I was going to uncover. Well, I think that comes through really apparently in the book and like what we we're talking about earlier in terms of hearing a song, maybe a, a mechanism toward discovering uh, a new artist or the original version. I think in many ways, what you described here uh, uh, 
An example of this being Eartha Kitt singing Snuff Out the Light, a song that was cut from the Emperor's New Groove. Which is one of the worst song cuts in the history of song cuts. That song is incredible and it's ridiculous. I know they I know why they had to cut it, but it's ridiculous. It's an amazing song. Go listen to it on YouTube. One of the best Disney songs ever written. And it, and it was featured on the on the soundtrack, um, no less. But and it's something that I've enjoyed for years, and I've talked about that in, in other spaces. But what I want to illustrate is, I think in many ways, your book will serve that purpose for many readers to discover um, and a song that they never heard of, or learn more about. Maybe read a bi- biography of Louis Armstrong, for instance, to to uh, to learn a, about his life uh, more more completely, or or even to feel like, hey, you know what? Now I have a greater appreciation for uh, some of the tunes that I'm I'm hearing in at Main Street USA. So I hope so. so I, I want my I want the readers of it to really feel number one entertained that they're thoroughly enjoying reading it and feel like they're they're learning something new. Um, it was really important to me to not write, uh, you know, you and I are both college, uh, you know, work in higher ed and there's a lot of that kind of writing that I do a lot of that you've done as well. And it's a little, you know, I don't like the word cold, but it it can be stuffy and it can be very textbooky and very, what are the big words we can use and very cerebral and highbrow and it's meant to be, you know, read as a college, you know, thing. And as much as that's great and I love writing that and I've gotten to, I've been blessed to get to do that kind of stuff. But with this one, I really wanted to, it's almost like I was writing it to my younger self of what I wish I had known more about. It would have let me appreciate these movies more, these artists more that I thought I knew that apparently I didn't. Um, And to just be entertained and be inspired by people and by jazz music and by Disney in new ways that you may not know about. And to still learn about our country because it really is a way of uh, looking at um, looking at our country. Uh, you know, when you look at jazz and music, if they're both two of the, the most popular American quintessential art forms, then it really does, uh, I don't know how to word it, it's smart to then have an appreciation for both and to understand how they both collided with each other and what they both stood for. Cause they really do represent America in specific unique ways. Um, I think in the book, I worried it like at the end of chapter one, I kind of do a recap and it's sort of, this is what Disney represents in terms of um, as our country, how we view Disney. This is what jazz seems to represent as our country. And I, and I give examples of that in word. And I think I end it by saying how that jazz celebrates the soul of America and Disney celebrates the heart of America because of all the different things it tries to stand for. And if you can, if you can look at our country and understand of, oh, what are the aspects that we have striv- that we have strived for as a soul of our nation, as a heart of our nation, what can that look like? And what can that tell you about our own people and about how, what we've put out into the world? I think it's really interesting conversations. Looking at the history of jazz and Disney is looking at war and race and hope and innovation and success and failure and all of those things that, you know, built, uh, helped build a nation and its entertainment.
sound you, when you speak, Matt, you kind of sound like you're a writer. That was very beautifully said. <laughs> I'm I'm posing as one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think that was a, a really solid note um, to to wrap up on. But we can't leave without going through some Disney-related questions pertaining yes. to music and books. And I know because we've had conversations <laughs> leading up to our recording uh, where you've been teasing me that, oh, you can't talk about certain things because you're going to have to share on the podcast. Yes. So, Because I've, I've become a, a, a fan of yours. So I've listened to quite a bit of your episodes and I know you now and I know that you always end the episodes with these questions. So sometimes you've asked me questions of life. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to, that'll, you're going to ask me that on the podcast because one of your questions. And I said that I like conversations back and forth. So I also want you to answer your own questions. Okay. Let's see how it goes. Yes. First up, on the, yes. On the music front, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Um, as a kid, it would be uh, songs wise like singing songs, it was probably Aladdin because that was my favorite movie as a kid. But my favorite score, because I was also a, a geek early on as a kid that I loved musical scores. My favorite score, the instrumental music was Little Mermaid. So I remember as a kid listening a lot to, I would go back and forth between Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Aladdin was my favorite movie, but I loved the score, the instrumental score of Little Mermaid. Well, and we're definitely keeping with that theme of the Mencken uh, yes. Disney Renaissance for sure. Yes, I would still argue to this day that the Little Mermaid is probably still the best score from a Disney film. I have my reasons. I can get into like super music theory nerd thing about it. But even if someone asked me as an adult, what score do you think is the most successful or most effective instrumental score? I would say Little Mermaid. Very nice. Yes. So how about you? What would your answer be? You know, well, you are putting me on the spot because I didn't know that you're going to completely turn the tables on me. Um, Well, I'm not sure. I think actually it would be an album, um, a compilation album. And I share this with you um, a few months, a few weeks ago, actually. So it uh, debuted in 1998 and it celebrated Disney's 75th uh, anniversary as a company. And the album focus, uh, is across three discs and illustrates music from um, all of those decades. And so the, the first disc is the first few decades and then middle disc, of course, um, middle of the tw- 20th century. And then later on yeah. in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So now that's different than, what was it called? Um, Cause I know you'll know this. The, mm-hmm the series of song it was basically like mixtapes yeah but, but they each one had a different color like yes. green, oh. red, blue. what were oh, yes. those things called because i had all of those too i think it was just called classic disney yeah because um, it was but, a way to have a mixtape before you were able to make a mixtape oh <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah and, and that's what this served as as well but the difference was is that well one it was very expensive it was expensive at the time but it also had be, has, I should say, beautiful liner notes that provide context and imagery of all the, uh, all the songs that are illustrated. And, um, and for me, like when I hear certain songs, because I would listen to it chronologically, and that's how the CDs follow, like I'm always expecting to hear Honor to Us All from Mulan <laughs> after One Last Hope 
from Hercules. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, see, maybe chrono- not the f- see what I said early in the episode. Chrono- yeah. Chronological things matter. <laughs> yeah, except uh, that would not be the, the strongest song from Hercules in my book. But um, yeah, those are two interesting songs to do back to back. Yeah. It, it was basically, I mean, that's the hard part for the folks developing the album um, in terms of, okay, what's what's an example of something from this property? Because they only picked one. There was only one song from yeah. Beauty and the Beast and for Aladdin, it was one jump ahead, Yeah, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's shift to the next question. What yeah. Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Um, probably for me, it's one that gets stuck in my head a lot because I think it's, it's by by no means my favorite Disney movie, but probably it's definitely one of my favorite just individual Disney songs is Zero to Hero from Hercules. I just think it's a it's a killer song. Those ladies do an incredible job on it. Um, Hercules is not at all my favorite Disney movie, but I love Zero to Hero. I could listen to that over and over. <laughs> yeah, and you played beautifully on the piano too, so. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I enjoy playing Disney songs on the piano. I do it all the time in class in my music theory classes and the students seem to appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And you? Before we recorded, I was listening to The Princess and the Frog. So I will say Friends on the Other Side as performed yes. by Keith David. That's a good one. And That's it fits within the notion of, of Disney jazz. So there you have it. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's just a real soulful, um, soulful feel. And there's a great chorus in the back um, mm-hmm. as well that adds a lot of uh, power to the the to the piece, uh, the yeah. villain song. I, lo- I love that you were listening to like a villain song before you <laughs> do our our podcast recording. <laughs> like yeah. that's what pumps you up to do a podcast recording of a villain song. Yeah, yeah, it it does. Let me tell you. Like, I mean, I could have gone for poor on for unfortunate souls but that wasn't in the mix today <laughs> matt what disney film do you feel has the most underrated music okay so i knew you were going to ask me this because you ask everyone this and my answer changed so my original answer was going to be a goofy movie because it just you know well granted i feel like there is no disney movie music that is quote-unquote like not heard of like uh, everything has a cult following but a goofy movie definitely uh kind of got lost in the shuffle in the middle of the 90s during the renaissance blockbusters but goofy movie has incredible music that is like quintessential 90s pop and it's fantastic eye to eye is one of the best disney songs ever written but i i'm gonna change my answer and i really think it's coco because even though coco is a fantastic movie and it's popular by no means like bombed or anything but during the era of Moana and Frozen and Tangled I just feel like you don't hear here one you don't hear the movie talked about nearly as much as all those other ones and especially the music you know every everyone is singing let it go and um uh I don't know what's the thing that Moana how far I'll go. Uh, yes, how far I'll go. Like all this kind of thing. But you don't hear a lot of people singing, um, you know, uh, uh, Poco Loco or, you know, Proud Corazon. But they're really, really great. And I, I went back a few weeks ago and re-listened to the Coco soundtrack. And I was sort of reminded of, oh, this is a really great soundtrack. And not just Remember Me, because that's sort of the, the one song that 
like it's sort of the single of it, which it's a great song. But Remember Me, in my opinion, isn't at all like the best song on the thing. And there's a lot of fantastic numbers in that movie that I think have not gotten the love that it should have received, like songs from Moana and Frozen during that same era did. So I changed it from a goofy movie to Coco. Okay. Recent entry, but still uh, still fitting. Yes. I wish people celebrated that music more. And I'm one of them. Like after I listened to it, I went, why don't I listen to this more? Yeah. <laughs> why don't I know why like why don't I know these songs by heart like I do the other ones? They're fantastic. Yeah. And it's only four four years since the film debuted. So yeah. I imagine time will work in its favor. I hope so. Yes. How about you? Many of, street, mister. Yeah, many of my previous listeners have said The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, mm-hmm. and I would, I'd be inclined to select that as well, because it was a movie that, much like Toy Story, debuted during a very pivotal time in my Disney fandom as a, as a, to- as a I wasn't quite a toddler, I was a very young child, um, <laughs> so it has a very special place because of watching that VHS, and um, on recently, uh, Dr. James Mason came on the podcast and we talked all about our love for Hunchback. But for me, it's a film that debuted in the midst of, of films like Lion King and Hunchback, uh, Hunchback and Pocahontas and many others. And because of Disney, the mu- Disney musical decline for whatever reason, um, just unfolding in the latter 90s where people weren't quite appreciating the music as much and, and that caused Disney to shift in terms of its animated feature focus. Um, it, it was a, a travesty because Hunchback kind of got lost in the mix, um, but certainly through other films that we've discussed, like A Hocus Pocus, it found an audience um, yeah. years down the line. And for me, um, the significance, the poignance of a film like Hunchback and, and how the songs cover everything from religion to um, confidence uh, via out there, which is a, a ballad for, for so many of us um, in the LGBTQ plus community, the disabilities community, as, as James and I discussed on our episode, um, Topsy Turvy just being a fanciful anthem of uh, craziness. And um, yeah. there's Bells of Notre Dame being one of the darkest songs in the Disney line. Well, Hellfire, I guess, would, would take that. Bill, but Bells of Notre Dame is extremely dark um, too. Bells of Notre Dame is one of the best openings mm-hmm. ever yeah. of a Disney movie. Yeah. No, I do, I remember when Hunchback came out that like critics loved it. Like I remember some critics were calling it the best thing since Beauty and the Beast because Beauty and the Beast was sort of the benchmark, right. the first animated movie to be you know best Oscar, best picture. Oscar nomination. Um, so Hunchback, like critics loved it, but it, it, it wasn't a, a huge blockbuster with just mainstream audiences that other Disney ones were. But yeah, that music is fantastic. And well, the Broadway me- musical, well, it didn't go to Broadway, right. but the musical version of it is also phenomenal. Right. Well, and, and also too, you know, in terms of the praise it received, but yet Hunchback was not nominated yeah. for, um, the, the score was nominated for um, at the time, there was a division between um, music and comedy and drama um, yeah. for scores, which is an interesting period. But um, the but out there and the other songs, none of them were nominated. Um, yeah. And I feel like out there's, I mean, I've said it's probably one of my favorite, if not favorite, Disney songs. So yeah, 
it, yeah. it's very i love how it takes itself seriously i mean even to have a song like god help the outcast i mean that's such a to think of that as like a disney song it, it's pretty sophisticated and mature yeah so um so yeah that would be my answer and i again pointing listeners to that two-part episode with james on hunchback and yeah. its music um but yeah i would i would totally go with that um as as my selection um but i would also argue that there are a number of films that do not have songs but just incredible scores that for me um are very much overlooked um and certainly um had bruce Broughton on the podcast and his score scores for the homer bound films are just mm-hmm. magnificent uh, and many many others but yeah. you know it comes down to what what has uh, great resonance with us during specific times and for me that was my formative years um in the in the 90s so uh shifting over to books yeah what is the most recent disney book that you've read um i think this is i think this counts i'm gonna i'm gonna just veto you and say that it counts just right off the bat um i so one of the other uh i'm always in the middle of doing some kind of writing thing and last month i finished uh, writing, co-writing a, a chapter for an upcoming uh, book that's coming out, um, kind of like a textbook sort of thing. And the chapter is on Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, the Broadway musical um, that, that became one of the most uh, prolific bombs in Broadway history. Uh, but it was directed by Julie Tamor. And so I, and the chapter is about her and, and sort of defending what she did. But anyways, Julie Tamar, her claim to fame is that she directed Lion King on Broadway, which has become the most successful entertainment venture in all of uh, history, which is phenomenal that a a Broadway musical would do that. Um, And I'm shocked that she is just not a household name like Andrew Lloyd Webber or things like uh, people like that, Stephen Sondheim. I mean, she directed the most successful thing in the successful entertainment venture in the history of the world. That's the soapbox. That's another podcast episode. But I had to do a lot of reading about her. And of course, Lion King is talked about at length and all those things. So even though I was doing research for a non-Disney thing, it's about Spider-Man, I I was reading a lot where Lion King is constantly discussed and brought up. So I'm going to say that counts because I read a series of books that I was forced to read a lot about Lion King, even though that wasn't what I was writing about. So I'm going to say all of the Julie Tamar books that I did for research that discuss Lion King at length within the books. Okay, I will accept your answer. <laughs> uh, I say it counts. Yes, yes, and I won't, I won't argue with you. Uh, my selection is your book, so that's the end of the story. <laughs> which is called Cool Cats and a Hot Mouse, A History of Jazz and Disney which is available right now. <laughs> well, you'll get, you'll, have your mo- you'll have your moment in a minute. So just don't, don't get too ahead of yourself, Matt. Um, if you could write a Disney book on any t- topic that you haven't already, uh, what, it, what would it be about? So I would like to do, um, so I, I teach multiple music theory classes in college and uh, I've seen music theory books for a beginner music theory like that you usually give to kids that use Disney to teach music theory. But I think it would be cool um, to have one big extensive music theory book that literally goes from beginning 
all the way to advanced, like what you would have in college. And for each chapter, whatever I'm talking about music theory wise, then I would show it in examples and use what are all the different famous ways we can use it to wrap your head around it. Because I noticed in, in my music theory classes, if I'm teaching a concept, especially more of an advanced thing, if I when I go to the piano and I play it, like, well, here's a Disney song it's in, here's a Christmas song it's in, here's a, a movie theme that you know about, here's how it's in that, it kind of just makes it more relatable and a bit more exciting and it's not just math at that point. Um, so I would love to write a music theory book that does all levels of music theory from literally start to finish, but it's using different examples. And one idea was to each chapter use a mixture of like a Disney song and a film theme song and a pop song and just different examples. But Disney has such a vast history of music, you could probably also just use a Disney example for every single theory component ever. <laughs> um, so maybe something like that, something that is more advanced than the theory books that are out there, because those are usually just for beginner age for like the first couple of years of music theory. I love to see something more advanced and more of an overarching thing of all of music theory. If that well, that is fascinating. I am, I'm intrigued. So maybe at some point, all right. The problem is then you get into a lot of legality things like that. If you're having, if you're going to start printing sheet music and melody notes and copyrighted things, it's not as easy to write. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I do think back to um, James Bones' book, Music and Disney's Animated Features, and there are little snippets um, of yeah. that. Yeah, so that that definitely comes to mind as being a, a, just a recommendation for for listeners too. Uh, covers from the early days till uh, Jungle Book, I believe. Um, so that's a great piece of text too. But yeah, Matt, your your idea sounds great. Well, thank you. Um, I am not going to. Uh, I know you're going to ask me the same question. Yeah. I am not going to answer that because if I end up writing a book, I do not want to. <laughs> I do you don't want, want someone to steal it. Right. Well, and I will point listeners to uh, subsequent episodes where we're going to talk about with, uh, Emily and Courtney of Book of Mouse Club on, uh, Disney books that should be written. So, uh, you'll hear oh, some yes. thoughts on that too. Okay, Matt, last question. This is a random one. So, okay. um, you kind of <laughs> plan for this. Okay. Lay it on me. What is an example, or I'll just say name one example. Cause if I say, and ex- if you're going to mention many examples, so I'm going to ask you name one Yes. example of a Disney song that you would love to have reinterpreted in a, a style related to jazz or a branch of jazz. Um, a, a non-jazzy Disney song that I would want reinterpreted in a jazz way. Correct. I mean, they've all been done. <laughs> so, I mean, I would say, I know it's already been done, but since Little Mermaid is my favorite score, and Little Mermaid isn't jazzy at all, except kind of under the sea, but not really. That's a whole different thing. Um, so I guess something like Part of Your World, because I think Part of Your World is a fantastic Disney ballad as a, as a great example of just traditional Disney ballad at its best. And I know there's been tons of jazz versions of it, I'm sure, but I think it would lend itself nicely to jazz, like a nice jazz lounge ballad. I dig that. Yeah, I could I could see myself being in a just a, a nice 
quaint uh, lounge and hearing the singer just belt out their own scat version of part of your world. <laughs> <laughs> no, like a smoky lounge area where there's just candles and it's just the grand piano and okay, that too. the microphone and the saxophone. And yes. That too. Like a, yeah. a sultry part of your world. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ariel, Ariel's a little older. <laughs> yeah. She's no yeah. longer 16. Um, <laughs> she's now performing at the clubs. Um, that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. Okay. People, people make it. fun of me when I say Little Mermaid is my favorite instrumental score. No. Oh. Yes. It's great. Listen to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There you go. Yes. I don't say the story is amazing. <laughs> I'm not condoning like your underage teenage girl go off and just leave home for a man she saw across a boat for 30 seconds. But the music is fantastic. There you go. Okay. Part of your world should yes. be reinterpreted. There you go. I was trying to, are you going to ask me the question? Wait, are you going to answer it? I will answer oh, okay. it. Okay, yes, I'm going to turn it around on you then. Okay, because I I realized, oh crap, I cannot think of any, because you're right, <laughs> most of them have been, uh, you know, uh, many songs have eventually, you know, through cover versions. Here's one that I don't think has been covered in jazz. So I'm going to put it, I, I would like to see some performers try to make this work. Woody's Roundup from Toy Story 2. Okay, all right. There's a lot of fun wordplay in there. You have the rootness, tootness, shootness, hootness, <laughs> yeah. cowboy around. <laughs> okay, I can see that. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think I've heard a, a jazz version of that song. And I've listened to a lot of jazz versions over the last few years when I was writing the book. <laughs> so, there you go. That could be a, a, a nice one-two punch. Part of your world and Woody's Roundup. Yes. I should have known yours would be something from Toy Story. You've told um, me multiple times Toy Story is your favorite. Yeah, but you, I mean, you mentioned, you briefly mentioned um, Randy Newman's work for Toy Story um, in your book too. So like, if I'm not mistaken, right? So yeah. Yeah, because yeah. there's, there's that influence a, with Strange Things in particular. Yeah, yeah. no, his, his work definitely has an influence of yeah. um, uh, jazz and jazz adjacent things to it. Yeah. Because there's the call and response um, with this, with the you know the the title lyric, "Strange Things." You hear him and the backup singers, which is a kind of a fun fun aspect. So yes, I agree. Uh, good, I'm glad. Uh, Matt, let's <laughs> wrap like, up. I disagree. I'm yeah, <laughs> that would that would be a, a really bad and conclusion. Oh, wait, to the episode. End. <laughs> yeah, but we are at the end. Yes. Um, but really, for many listeners, it's going to be the start of their journey into the world of, of Matthew Hodge. How can listeners follow your work? The easiest way is to go to my website, uh, www.matthodge.com. Um, all of my stuff is up there. Um, I have quite a few writing projects um, that have been published or are getting ready to be published. I'm getting ready to release a book about Batman music, which I'm very excited about, Batman villain music. Um, and I have other books and other book chapters that are coming out or that are that are already out, but they're all condensed on my website. But especially to get the Cool Cats and a Hot Mouse book, um, you can go to the website, matthodge.com, and then all the links to get it on Amazon and Walmart and Barnes and Noble. And all that stuff is, is there. And you can read all about it and read about some of the awards it won, which I'm really proud about, that I was very shocked that it won. So uh, I'm proud of the book and I hope readers enjoy it and are entertained by it. I, I believe that will be their reaction 
Matt, you're one of my favorite humans. Thank you for being on Notably Disney. Um, it's an honor. I'm not the level of Harry Gregson Williams, which I still can't believe like you got to interview him, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm very happy to be on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Brett. Thank you again to Matt Hodge for discussing Cool Cats and a Haunt Mouse, a history of jazz and Disney with me today. I'd highly recommend you check out this read that will have you humming tons of classic tunes in your head. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.